Well, have you recovered from the election yet? Well, we've got a pot-smoking draft dodger as vice president. Now, back in the 60s, I would have regarded that as utopia. I, I don't hold Quayle's voting record against him. I figure that's what he had to do to get uh, to the upper echelons of the Republican Party, but secretly, he's one of us. At least that's, uh, that's the kind of thought that keeps me happy uh, when, uh, when I'm inclined to become totally paranoid about things. Uh, Quayle, um, a lot of people have been making fun of his military record, but um, you've got to remember that when the Viet Cong found out he, he was in the Indiana National Guard, they gave up all attempts to invade Terre Haute. <laughs> and uh, uh, Stanley Kubrick is making a movie about Dan Quayle now. It's called Full Dinner Jacket. <laughs> and uh, to round out my uh, medley of Dan Quayle jokes, you know what his wife said on their wedding night? You're no John Kennedy. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, maybe I've been a little too hard on Jay Danforth. Bush, Bush is something else. We've had a lot of presidents who have been tools of the CIA, who've been lied to and manipulated by the CIA. Bush is the first case in which the CIA occupies the White House. He's been with the C. He, he was the, the head director of the CIA for one year, and everybody says, oh, that was just one year. But the Los Angeles Weekly uh, a month ago documented that he's been involved with the CIA for over 20 years. He's a company man. So now the country has been taken over by the CIA. So after trying to cheer you up with the thought Dan Quayle is one of us, I just scared the hell out of you, I suppose. I don't think that any president has had more people praying for his health than Bush has right now. <laughs> Bush uh, was the first one to uh, volunteer for a urine test uh, for drugs. Uh, that's, uh, that's a peculiarly American institution. I can't imagine it happening anywhere else in the world. I've read uh, Kafka and George Orwell and a lot of science fiction uh, horror stories uh, about totalitarian states, and not, not even Kafka dreamed up the idea of a government inspecting the urine of its citizens. Yeah, I lived in Ireland for six years, and there's something about flying back, and you see the Statue of Liberty and all those noble words written on the book, and then you find out this is the land of uh, urine compulsory urine testing. It's, uh, it's pure surrealism. But Bush volunteered for the first urine test to set a good example on totalitarianism for the rest of us. Uh, during the Iran-Contra uh, investigation, he refused to take a lie detector test, though. I suppose that means he doesn't want us to know whether he's telling the truth or lying, but he wants us to know he's not stoned while he's doing it. That's, uh, that's, uh, you, you, know, you know why Bush won? There's something about George Bush that appeals to the uh, small-town wasp, old-fashioned type of American. You just look at his face. And what do you think of when you look at George Bush? You think, here's a man who hasn't had a problem in 20 years. <laughs> and that, that, that brings out the, the, the Baptist and Methodist vote like nothing else will. <clears throat> uh, Bush has been a godsend to satirists. You know, the worse things get for the rest of you, the better they get for those of us who make our living from satire. And, uh, but, but <laughs> And Bush is an incredible, uh, it's like a gift from God.
Now, Gary Trudeau found out the perfect way to uh, symbolize Bush and Doonesbury and nothing. There was an empty space in the cartoon whenever Bush was there and a voice coming out of it. And then Bush gave him the punchline. Now Trudeau represents him by an empty space with an American flag wrapped around it. And there couldn't possibly be a better symbol of George Bush. Uh, did you uh, get the uh, handouts advertising my lectures next month and, uh, and my newsletter? Uh, you didn't get the advertisements for the uh, next month? Uh, okay, did anybody get the surprise uh, sheets? Well, they're not an advertisement for my lectures or my newsletter. Where do they go? Do they just disappear? Did anybody get a sheet with a with a uh, sinister message on it? I think they're handing out some more of these things. And nobody got the, uh, the the three. You did. Ah, what does it say? A little louder, please. A little louder, please. <laughs> ah, that's from the latest issue of Reality Hackers magazine. And because you got the first one of those uh, messages, you get a free copy of Trajectories. Would you pass it down to her? That's my newsletter. And uh, no, nobody else got one of those sinister messages? Oh, back there. Ah, what does it say? L loud, loud, please. I want to make sure everybody remembers this. says the same as the first one. Uh, the, uh, the, the, the likelihood that somebody will penetrate the IRS computers with a virus to wipe out records selectively or wholesale is almost a certainty. That's the opinion of one of the uh, authors in Reality Hackers magazine, which is sort of the house journal of cyberpunk. And it's, uh, it's very interesting. Uh, when I woke up this morning, uh, picked up the LA Times, the first thing I saw on the first page is there's been another ghostly electronic intruder wandering through the Pentagon again. Did you see that story today? Somebody penetrated the Pentagon again and has been uh, manipulating uh, records and uh, altering things. That's uh, the second time in two years the last time was in 1986. There was a chap who, uh, whose ghostly electronic traces were found at Lawrence Livermore Laboratories. And they started tracking him and they found he'd been in through the Pentagon and wandered through the Naval Data Center in Norfolk, Virginia. And he'd been into Lawrence Berkeley Labs where they do all the advanced nuclear research to find better and better ways to kill more and more people. 
Uh, Lawrence Berkeley Laboratories is the, uh, the epitome, the acme, the, the synecdoche of uh, modern American civilization. They have the best brains on the planet, or some of the best brains on the planet, and they're paying them fantastically high salaries to turn their intelligence to one project alone. How to deliver more and more explosive power over longer and longer distances in shorter and shorter times to kill more and more people. Now, this is, this, is the, this is the triumph of human intelligence. Uh, we've arrived at the point where people can uh, become millionaires. Uh, scientists can become millionaires uh, by working on a project that, that, that is that socially useful. And if we give them a few more years, they'll learn how to kill everybody by pressing one button without delivering anything anywhere. And then we'll have achieved the goal of Western civilization, I guess. Didn't anybody get the third? Uh, you did. Hmm? What's, what's this? What's with this cryptic pointing? Well, read it. Read it in a good, loud, baritone voice. Let the syllables roll. Chaos with Paula targeting the IRS computers with viruses to destroy records selectively or wholesale. The likelihood of such a penetration is almost a certainty. Ah, very good, very good. Now I hope you'll remember it. And, uh... Well, wait a minute, wasn't that the third? I, uh, something's wrong here tonight. There, there, there's, there's, we're, we're in the middle of a time warp. Uh, that was only the second? Well, the second one didn't get there. Who, okay, give the trajectories to the lady in the back. And for getting the third one, you get a copy of Schrodinger's Cat. <clears throat> but before... Wait, sit down, sit down. Before you... Uh, before you pick up your copy of uh, Schrodinger's Cat, I am going to read a passage from my favorite author. Uh, all, all, all writers love to read their works aloud. <clears throat> this is, uh, uh, Schrodinger's Cat is set in a series of parallel universes. There are a great many physicists who believe that there really are parallel universes. That was a concept that started in science fiction, but it's now taken very seriously, especially by the younger generation of physicists, and especially by the ones who did a lot of acid in the 60s. <laughs> in this parallel universe, uh, one of my favorite novelists appears uh, with a different sex, because uh, every, everything that can happen does happen according to this model uh, in quantum mechanics. It's known as the Everett Wheeler-Graham model. Everything that can happen does happen. So everybody who's born male in this universe is born female in another universe. Everybody born female in this universe is born male in another universe. And that is a thought for male chauvinists and feminists to ponder tonight if they don't ponder anything else I said. Simon Moon once met the most famous computer expert in Unistat, Wilhelmina Burroughs, granddaughter of the inventor of the first calculating machine. Have you noticed that the computers are all getting weirder lately, Simon asked, testing her? The programmers are getting weirder, Ms. Burroughs said, not falling into Simon's trap. 
I knew it was bound to happen as soon as I read a survey, back around 68, I think it was, showing that programmers use LSD more than any other professional group. You look like an acid head yourself, she added with her characteristic bluntness. Well, as a matter of fact, I have dabbled a little trip now and then. No pattern of abuse, surely. That's what they all say, Miss Burroughs sniffed. But the cookie glitch pops up more and more places every day. I'll wager you've seen it by now, haven't you? Of course you have. Does everybody know the cookie glitch? Now, there's a few people who haven't encountered the cookie glitch yet. I first heard of it around 1976 from a guy working in the computer department of Bank of America in San Francisco. Uh, you're working on an ordinary uh, program on the computer, and suddenly the screen goes blank, and up comes a little box, and it says, give me a cookie. Uh, and you can't get the damn machine to do anything until you figure out how to respond to that. And the correct answer is just to type, tap out on the keyboard, a cookie. And up comes a box saying, yummy, that was good. And then the computer goes back to work. And uh, since, uh, since, I, since I included the cookie glitch in this book, that cookie glitch has become much more widespread. It sometimes makes me wonder about the responsibilities that a writer has and the, the danger of talking about certain ideas. Uh, forget that thing about the penetrating the IRS computers. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm sorry. I brought that up at all. <clears throat> I'll wager you've seen it a few times, haven't you? Of course you have. Yes, but certainly that's harmless humor, wouldn't you say? Ms. Burroughs peered at him with insectoid intensity. Are you aware, she asked, that millions of previously law-abiding citizens have stopped paying their credit card debts? First, they get a little postcard that says, here, I've got one in my purse. She rummaged about in an alligator bag and showed Simon a postcard that said, congratulations, you are one of the lucky 500 whose debts have been canceled by the network. Keep your mouth shut and play it cool. <laughs> lucky 500, Ms. Burroughs said with a roomy cackle of skepticism. Lucky 10 million is more like the truth. This postcard was turned into Diner's Club by an honest man. And you know how few of them there are. A check showed that his tapes had been erased and there was no record that he ever owed anything. God alone knows how many others there are who have taken advantage of the scam. Well, Simon said, maybe there are only 500. Maybe it was just a one-shot by some joker with a Robin Hood complex. I am an expert, Ms. Burroughs reminded him, ignoring the fact that he was an expert, too. I have no idea how many there are out there in Unistat who've taken advantage of the network's liberality, but I'll wager there are millions, lucky 500. That's just to make the marks feel that they've been specially selected as the network leads them down the primrose path to anarchy. <clears throat> Uh, oh, yes, you get your copy of Schrodinger's Cat now that I've uh, read that. Uh, <clears throat> the title of uh, tonight's entertainment, uh, I think I'm through with all my George Bush jokes. Uh, the title of tonight's entertainment is Preparing for the 21st Century. And to prepare for the 21st century, you've got to be aware uh, that computer viruses are going to play an increasingly large role in all of our lives. The 
<laughs> the, uh, since you all like the cookie glitch, there's, uh, there's another one that's uh, very popular. Uh, uh, I heard about from a friend of mine. Uh, if uh, at a certain bank, if you're part of the day staff, when you use the computer, you type in your name and your identification number and it starts programming. At night, if you're working late, you come back after dinner, you type in your name and your ID number, and the computer type uh, prints out on the screen, crazy man, what's your sign? And uh, usually it just goes to work after that, but sometimes it follows it up with another one. If you try to get it to go to work, it asks, scored any good grass lately? <laughs> and uh, there are even computers that occasionally startle people by saying, I've been wanting to tell you what lovely eyes you have. <laughs> now, how do you, how do you react when a machine makes a pass at you? And, uh, <clears throat> well, uh, the, uh, there's even a, there's, uh, my favorite virus uh, is a purely humorous and harmless one. Uh, if you uh, exchange uh, software with friends, which of course is against the law and nobody does it except everybody who owns a computer. Uh, if you exchange software with a friend, this is likely to pop up in your computer sooner or later. Um, uh, somebody writing on viruses uh, said the only, the only safe rule is don't take software from anybody. Just say no. I, I thought that was not, I thought that was Nancy Reagan's slogan, uh, which is very very confusing when you consider you know that all the evidence that the CIA is the main importer of cocaine, and uh, you know they were running a bank in Miami, the uh, the World Finance Corporation in Miami turned out to be the main laundromat for cocaine money from the CIA's favorite South American dictators, and the CIA owned the bank. That came out a couple of years ago. The Dade County. District Attorney tried to prosecute and he found that the CIA was blocking his prosecution every step of the way. So Nancy says, just say no, and the CIA says, just fly low, and, and so, so it goes. The, uh, I digressed, as usual. Uh, that's deliberate, by the way. Uh, uh, the, way, the way to approach the 21st century is to realize that linear thinking has completely collapsed and we've got to learn to think in nonlinear modes like modern art. I'll get back to that thought in a few minutes. I was, <laughs> I was about to tell you about uh, the subgenius uh, virus. How many people here are members of the Church of the Subgenius? Oh, that's good, that's good. It's encouraging to see that the truth is reaching the masses at last. The, the, the Church of the Subgenius was founded by my good friend, J.R. Bob Dobbs of Dallas, Texas. Uh, Bob was a simple, simple aluminum siding salesman until one day in 1957, he was in an elevator that got stalled between floors in Palm Beach, and the only other passenger on the elevator was L. Ron Hubbard. <laughs> and, and because they were stuck between floors and they didn't know when they were going to get rescued, uh, Hubbard revealed the secret of power to J.R. Bob Dobbs. And so now Bob has his own church and millions of zombies out on the streets proselytizing. And uh, he's, got, he's uh, well on his way to being as rich as Hubbard or the Pope or Rajanish or 
any of the people in that racket. Uh, the, the secret of power, uh, you can, uh, all you got to do is send a dollar to the Church of the Subgenius and they'll send you a pile of literature that looks like absolute gibberish. If you pass that test, if you could find the grain of truth in that, you will then send them $10 and they'll send you an even bigger pile of literature that looks even more like gibberish. If you can make sense out of that, they'll sell you more for $100 and so on. Eventually, if you get through all the subgenius literature, you'll achieve slack. <laughs> and when you have slack, all your problems will be solved. Uh, the universe, as, as you know, the Chinese think the universe consists of yin and yang. Uh, that's a very primitive approach. Uh, modern physicists say it consists of positive and negative charges, which is much more sophisticated. The deep metaphysical truth was approximated by my friend Malaclips the Younger in San Francisco at the head temple of the Discordian Society, House of Apostles of Aris, on the site of the beautiful future San Andreas Canyon. And uh, that, that is that the universe consists of hodge and podge in equal balance. And that's symbolized by the Discordian sacred cow, which some of you must have seen by now. Uh, it looks like the Chinese yin-yang, except uh, on the yang side, it's got a pentagon representing the acme of bureaucracy. And on the yin side, it's got an apple representing the golden apple of Aris, the goddess of chaos and also representing the apple of Eve, which led to the beginning of human curiosity and evolution. And it also represents the apple that used to disappear from the stage of the Flatbush Burlesque Theater in Brooklyn when <laughs> Peaches LaRue did the split on top of it at the end of her striptease. Uh, uh, the, uh, there's, a lot of more, there's a lot more heavy metaphysics in the sacred cow or the hodgepodge, but uh, that was only an approximation. It was J.R. Bob Dobbs who discovered the universe consists of something and nothing. <laughs> and and that, that's, that's pretty, well, you know, uh, uh, atoms in the void is the way Lucretius put it, but uh, uh, in yin and the, the I Ching, it's yin and yang, on and off uh, signs. But if you take anything like, uh, say, this uh, glass, which the naive among you will think is full of water, <sighs> never drink water, fish fucking it. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, uh, this glass of uh, mysterious liquid, which some of you are naive enough to think is water, when you look at this, you see something. When you look around it, you see nothing. So the whole universe, if you stop to think of it, consists of always you're seeing something with nothing all around it, right? Uh, if you look at me, you see something, I hope. I hope I'm not as translucent as George Bush. And then you look around me, you see nothing. And... If you can find the perfect balance between all the something in the universe and all the nothing in the universe, then you've got slack. <laughs> and when you've got slack, then you can get something for nothing. <laughs> and when you've reached that level of enlightenment, you can start your own church and get as rich as Bob Dobbs or Rajanish or the Pope or the Ayatollah or any of those people. And anyway, the subject, that's a brief introduction to subgenius theology that did not reveal a secret of power except indirectly for those of you who have spiritual insight have detected it in the midst of my words and in case you didn't get it I'll make it more clear with a parable uh, once there was a poor Hindu boy named Rajanish 
uh, he lived in he lived in terrible poverty in India, where things were very backward in those days. And he read in the newspaper that a Hindu had come over to the United States and found so many seekers after truth that he was able to buy a Rolls Royce. You know who that was? That was Krishnamurti. He he was the first one to get a Rolls Royce out of all the seekers in the United States. And Rajneesh read that, and he had this flash of darshan or satori or something like a light bulb going on over his head he said in america there's a seeker born every minute <laughs> so, so so he came he came over here and pretty soon he had 93 rolls royces right 93 everybody everybody was going around asking what the hell does he need 93 rolls royces for well what's the point of 93 rolls royces well, every time he got another Rolls Royce, he'd take a picture, a Polaroid snapshot of it, and he'd write on the back, fuck you, and send it to Krishnamurti. That's the, that's the way you play the guru game. <clears throat> that's the way Bob plays it, anyway. The, the subgenius virus that's going around, which was the beginning of this uh, tasteless and regrettable digression, uh, the subgenius virus... Uh, you're just innocently uh, doing whatever you're doing with your computer, maybe looking at uh, Mac Playmate, uh, maybe uh, uh, doing the payroll for your company, uh, maybe word processing, and suddenly the screen goes blank and you think, oh Jesus, what did I do now? What key did I touch? What, what, what's, what's happening now? And while you're trying to figure out whether you should push this one or push that one or wait and see if it'll correct itself or call the repair shop, up on the screen comes J.R. Bob Dobbs' face. And it says, fuck you if you can't take a joke. <laughs> and then it goes blank and it starts programming again. The penetration of the IRS is virtually a certainty. Who said that? Oh, yeah, that was Michael Synergy and Reality Hackers. Uh, have you ever seriously considered the sex life of the Norway rat? This randy little rodent, this voluptuous vermin, this sex-starved invertebrate has been multiplying at an alarming rate throughout human history. And this is especially astounding because human beings keep trying to get rid of the Norway rat. The Norway rat is so smart that he's managed to arrange things that the wrong people get blamed for him. The Norway rat did not originate in Norway. The Norway rat originated in Southeast Asia, probably in the vicinity of what's now Cambodia and Thailand, the Golden Triangle, where all the opium in the world comes from, or most of it. And the Norway rat uh, followed the biblical injunction to be fruitful and multiply and eventually found there wasn't enough to eat in that area, so it migrated northwestwards into India and kept on spreading its way through the Near East until around the 13th century of the Christian era it arrived in Europe, bringing bubonic plague with it, which made it one of the most unpopular animals on the planet. Now, ever since then, human beings have been trying to get rid of this critter. But it goes on being fruitful and multiplying, uh, in the 18th century, it arrived as far north as Norway, and the Norwegians have been blamed for it ever since. It's not only called the Norway rat in popular speech, the scientific label is Musratus Norvegicus. And the poor Norwegians had nothing to do with it. They were just one of the 
poor people uh, had to give it hospitality temporarily while it was eating their uh, grains and whatnot. Uh, the Norway rat continued its steady uh, increase in migration in a western, westerly and vaguely northern, northerly direction. In 1776, it had uh, in, infested Philadelphia to the extent that the delegates at the Continental Congress were all complaining about the rats in the hotels and inns there. In 1849, Sutter discovered gold in California which was the beginning of the vast migration that brought all of us here. And by 1859, the Norway rat was found in San Francisco. I, know, I don't have a date on when it arrived in Los Angeles, but uh, I guess it must have been a few years before San Francisco. Uh, the Norway rat was found in Hawaii in 1872. Uh, it is, uh, so it's now back on the doorstep of Asia. It has, it has circumnavigated the globe in the, in the last 3,000 years in spite of all that the human race can do to get rid of it. Now, do you think you are that smart? Do you think you could survive the whole human race trying to get rid of you and prosper and spread like that? This is a very intelligent little animal. And lately, the Norway rat is increasingly found on uh, transcontinental jets. They are learning to travel faster. <laughs> just, like, just, just like us. Uh, pretty soon there will be space colonies up there. The Russians have a permanently personed, or should I say entitied, colony. You shouldn't say personed because that suggests human chauvinism, uh, which I'm trying to avoid by starting out with the Norway rat before I talk about human evolution. Uh, Schrodinger's cat begins with one of the one of my favorite sentences of all that I have ever written, and like all writers, I have an insatiable appetite for my own sentences. But uh, Schrodinger's cat begins with the sentence, the majority of Terrans were six-legged. Very few people ever stop and think about that, any more than we stop and think of how we have served as hosts for the Norway rat and its steady progression across the world. The majority of, uh, of the intelligent entities on this planet are six-legged. If, uh, if you get a hole in your screen doors, you'll find out what I mean. Uh, J.B.S. Haldane, a great British biologist and mathematician, he was once asked, if you admitted a mind behind evolution, what would you say is its outstanding characteristic? And he said, an inordinate fondness for beetles. There are more species of beetles than there are of all the other insects on the planet, more than there are of all the mammals on the planet. There are more individual beetles on this planet than there are individual anything else's. And so when you try to contemplate the mind behind evolution, remember, it likes beetles. There's not much sign that it likes you. <clears throat> In Thailand and Cambodia, where the Norway rat began its peregrinations and infestations about this uh, globe of ours, uh, sometime around uh, 5,000 to 6,000 years ago, somebody discovered that if you put copper and tin in enough heat, you get something entirely new. That's, this, this was the beginning of synergetic thinking. Uh, Bucky Fuller did such a good job of popularizing the word synergy in the last 20 years of his life that I'm sure everybody in this audience knows what synergy means. Synergy means 
the type of situation in which you put two and two together and you don't get four, you get eight or 16 or something else. It's a non-additive relationship. And the word synergy comes from metallurgy because it was in metallurgy that we first discovered when you put two things together, you don't get the sum of the two, you get a, a much higher uh, and unpredictable result. And that happened first in somewhere around Cambodia, Thailand, when they found out that putting copper and tin uh, together gives you bronze. Uh, it had to happen in uh, Thailand uh, area because the, that has an inordinate amount of the world's copper and tin. So even if, the, even if there weren't any early experimenters with a theory or putterers without a theory, just by sheer serendipity, enough copper and tin was bound to fall into a fire that bronze was bound to come out sooner or later. But that gave birth to the Bronze Age. And when we talk about the Bronze Age, we mean a mutation in human consciousness and behavior. We mean a total transformation of the human species. The Bronze Age, which Alvin Toffler calls the first wave of civilization, uh, created human beings entirely different than tribal civilization. And uh, people from a, a tribal culture can be distinguished very clearly uh, from people from uh, a Bronze Age culture. In every respect, there, there are differences in uh, the whole style of life. Uh, Bronze Age culture begins with uh, the uh, building of uh, huge cities, the irrigation works, and the creation of a divine king who is almost always considered a direct descendant of the sun. The Inca in Peru was considered a descendant of the sun. So was the, the king of the Aztecs. Uh, Hirohito is still considered directly descended from the sun by pious Shintoists. Uh, in the 17th century, within the Christian world, uh, Louis XIV was still called the sun king. And these Bronze Age sun king civilizations spread across the world in a couple of millennium. After, the, after bronze was discovered, it only took uh, about 3,000 to 4,000 years before most of the world had been entirely transformed. All the tribal peoples were being exterminated or incorporated, and the world was one great, big, vast conglomerate of agricultural Bronze Age civilizations, all of them fighting one another. The, uh, the, the biggest uh, of all uh, at one point was the Roman Empire, but far bigger than that, by 1750 was the British Empire, which was the first empire of which it could be truly said, uh, on the British Empire, the sun never sets. Uh, that's because God wouldn't trust an Englishman in the dark. Or at least that's what they say in Ireland. <laughs> Around 1750, well, in 1765, actually, uh, James Watt, was looking at his mother's tea kettle and watching the lid pop up and down as the water heated. And he thought, gee, the water is turning into steam and the steam is making the top jump up and down. If I had enough steam, I could make it jump higher. And if I had enough steam, I could make that turn a wheel. And that's the way we got the steam engine. And the human race mutated to an entirely new level. Industriality, as Alvin Toffler calls it, spread across the world. The old agricultural civilizations were quickly replaced by industrial civilizations. And that took a matter of 200 years. Uh, the first wave 
civilizations, the Sun King, Bronze Age agricultural civilizations took millenniums to spread across the world. The industrial civilizations did it in only two centuries. The, there's an acceleration factor there. We're going from millenniums to centuries. The, the rate of change has increased tenfold. Uh, by 1950, uh, most of the world had been incorporated into industrial civilization. Uh, the agricultural civilizations that survived were colonies of the industrial civilizations. Uh, around 1950, in 1948, uh, John von Neumann invented the first programmable computer. And uh, I often think that's why we're all alive today. Uh, von Neumann was a, uh, one of the great minds of the 20th century. He, uh, he uh, invented quantum logic, which I, I consider one of the greatest advances in human intellectual history. Uh, we'd, we had been brainwashed, at least in the Western world, for two th over 2,000 years to believe that everything in the universe is, is either true or false. That's Aristotelian logic, which is based on the children's game of guess which hand it's in. We started out with guess which hand it's in, and in the Orient, they developed I Ching out of that, but the Orient was a little more subtle than the Occident, so in between yin and yang, they put a moving line. Uh, Aristotle persuaded the Occidental world we didn't need the moving line, and so we got an either-or logic either true or false, without anything in between. Von Neumann invented the first three-valued logic in the Western world, which is equivalent to the moving line in the Yi Jing. And uh, that was uh, his answer to the Schrodinger's cat problem, which brings me back to uh, the book I was reading from earlier. You see, it's all one seamless web, as Alan Watts used to say. Um, the Schrodinger's cat dilemma is uh, this. If you, uh, by the way, Schrodinger called this a fiendish, uh, a fiendish device. Many people, when they hear about this, they think Schrodinger must have had a morbid mind. Uh, actually, he was trying to highlight in a significant way the fundamental problem of quantum mechanics, which is that quantum mechanics works very efficiently. Almost all modern technology is based on quantum mechanics, and yet there are no two physicists who agree with each other about well, what quantum mechanics means philosophically, what it means in respect to our view of the reality in which we live, or if there is a reality. And uh, if you use Schrodinger's fiendish device, as he called it, you'd have a box with a cat in it and a poison gas pellet, and you'd have a radioactive metal decaying. And at a certain point in the radioactive decay, uh, there'd be enough atoms ejected that the poison gas pellet would be exploded. And when the poison gas pellet explodes, the cat dies. Now, uh, the idea of physics is uh, that you should have theories accurate enough that mesh with reality well enough, that are isomorphic enough with sensory, sensual, space-time experience, existential experience, that you can predict from the theory of physics what will happen in space-time sensory sensual experience. That's the goal of physics. And uh, uh, so if you sit down and solve the problem in terms of the equations of quantum mechanics, you take any time after you start the experiment, say 15 minutes, and you solve the equations for 15 minutes, and you find the state vector in the equation collapses to two values. That always happens in quantum mechanics. 
So you've got an eigenstate, as it's called, in which the poison gas pellet has been exploded because there's been enough atoms ejected. And you've got another eigenstate in which the poison gas pellet hasn't exploded. Therefore, you've got a dead cat and a live cat. Now, the cat remains in this mixed state. Uh, the cat is both dead and alive until you open the door and the box. This is the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum mechanics. When you open the door and the box, the quantum uncertainty collapses and the cat becomes either dead or alive. But as, uh, but as long as you leave the door closed, the cat is both dead and alive. That's the, that's the theme of my novel, Schrodinger's Cat. You see, that's why William Burroughs is a male in this universe and a female in that universe. Every possibility is equally real. Uh, Schrodinger invented this Gedanken experiment, or Goddammit experiment, I think is the English translation of that, uh, to, to bring to the forefront of discussion. Do we believe the equations of quantum mechanics or do we believe common sense? Uh, the argument for believing common sense is how the hell can a cat be dead and alive at the same time? That's just sheer nonsense. Even if it's elegant mathematics, it can't refer to the real world. Uh, the argument for believing quantum mechanics rather than common sense is quantum mechanics works, and the whole history of science has been a continuous onslaught against common sense in which one by one everything we believed in common sense turned out to be untrue. As Einstein said, common sense is what tells us the Earth is flat. So you pay your money and you take your choice. You can believe quantum mechanics or you can believe common sense. Uh, von Neumann uh, decided not to believe either quantum mechanics as it was then understood or common sense. He proposed that the universe has three values. It's not just true or false, like in Aristotle. It's got the three values of the I Ching, yin, yang, and a moving line or in English, yes, no, and maybe. So there's a universe in which the cat is dead, and a universe in which the cat is alive, and a universe in which the cat is in the maybe state. And if you stop to think about it, most, uh, most events in uh, our lives are in the maybe state. Very few things collapse definitely into a yes or no. We try to force them to collapse into a yes or no because we've been trained by Aristotelian logic to want to get yes or no answers. But if you're rigorously honest with yourself, you will discover that a, a simple question like, did you have eggs for breakfast last Wednesday, uh, does not have a definite yes or no answer. Well, you can do is say maybe. You can ask the people you live with, and you'll get three different opinions. No, it was Thursday you had eggs. Yes, it was Wednesday you had eggs. Most things remain in the maybe state. Uh, in addition to clarifying quantum mechanics with that wonderful insight, or confusing physicists thoroughly with that bit of obfuscation, whichever way you want to look at it. Uh, von Neumann went on to design the first programmable computer, as I said, ushered in the information age, and he also invented game theory, which is an elegant system of mathematics, which he started out uh, to explain uh, the best possible strategy for poker players, and as he expanded the mathematics of it, he discovered he had a system for telling uh, for making decisions in business competition, because business is a great deal like poker. Uh, business depends on getting the right stuff in your hands. It also depends on not letting your competitors know what you've got in your hand until you want them to know. And very often it depends on letting your competitors think you've got something in your hand that you don't have in your hand at all. You see the analogies? And after von Neumann was uh, through uh, developing math mathematical game theory to cover business, he discovered that it fits war games, too. 
As a matter of fact, the word war games comes directly out of von Neumann. And uh, so they started programming computers to solve uh, war games. They fight, they fight wars on computers instead of fighting them with, uh, with us. And uh, that's why we're all alive here tonight. Uh, because um, when you use von Neumann's game theory uh, with uh, the computers that grew out of the von Neumann revolution, uh, and you feed in a scenario to a computer and you ask uh, a kind of question that somebody like Ollie North or Dr. Strangelove or uh, Henry Kissinger might ask. Now, if we use this strategy, can we kill all the Russians without getting killed ourselves? And the computer will solve the problem and come up with the answer, no, you get killed too. So they say, oh, damn it, back to the drawing board. So they spent five years working out a new strategy to blow up the other half of the world without blowing ourselves up, and they feed it into the computers, and the computers say, no, you get killed too. And so they keep postponing the nuclear war, and that's why we're all still alive. You never realized you were alive because of John von Neumann, did you? <clears throat> After von Neumann invented the... Uh, programmable computer, uh, uh, another mutation occurred, and we entered a new stage of evolution, which uh, we call the information age, and that is rapidly phasing out the industrial age. I remember um, 15 years ago, I heard Bucky Fuller say, pretty soon nobody will be going to offices anymore, they'll all be working at home. And uh, Fuller had lots of reasons for believing that based on the way the computer field is developing. But Fuller also pointed out there are many parts of the world, especially Southern California, where the number of cars on the road is becoming absolutely suffocating. Um, if you left the computers out of your projections entirely and projected the population growth of Southern California, the people pouring in here every month from all over the country and all over the world, and the number of cars and so on, you would come up with a projection like in October 1993, everything gets stuck. Uh, uh, there's one gigantic traffic jam and nobody can move. And in three days, some people will leave their cars and stagger down the San Diego freeway looking for a pizza hut where they can get something to eat. And then we'll never get untangled because of all the empty cars clogging the way. I, I was talking earlier this evening to a man whose uh, field of specialty is transportation problems. And he says that uh, there are many people in that field who are working on ways to accelerate the computer revolution so there'll be more and more people working at home. There's even a word for it now. There wasn't a word for it when I first heard Bucky Fuller talk about it. The word is telecommuting. You don't commute by car to the office. You, you send your information into the office from your home computer and they send their information back to you. And that is what is gradually uh, replacing uh, the industrial age, telecommuting. And it's, uh, some people think it's uh, going to be accelerated by more and more stringent laws uh, to get people off the highways because the uh, traffic situation is getting to the point where it's critical. And uh, the, com the computer is not only keeping us alive by preventing a nuclear war, but it's changing our whole uh, way of regarding work and going to work. Going to work for more and more people means you get out of the bedroom and walk to the study. Uh, start hitting the keyboard. Uh, another way of looking at uh, this process, I, I've been talking about four stages of human civilization, the tribal stage, the Bronze Age agricultural 
stage, the industrial stage, and the information age. Uh, each one was ten times faster than the one before. We seem to have spent hundreds of thousands of years in the tribal stage and uh, about 6,000 years in the agricultural stage and a couple of hundred years in the industrial stage and we're going through the information stage in a matter of decades. But, but to make this uh, clearer, uh, I have some figures which I got from the French statistician Georges Andela. Uh, Andela using information theory to estimate uh, information in all sorts of uh, symbolisms. Uh, converting everything into binary, you can calculate the information in a painting, for instance. You can calculate the information in a television show, although you usually find there isn't much. Uh, but how many people here are Prisoner fans? Am I the only Prisoner fan in the... Ah! Oh, I know it. I know it. My audiences are always full of Prisoner fans. If you consider the first 70 seconds of The Prisoner, there's more information in that 70 seconds than there is in the average one-hour drama. Uh, and that's one of the clearest illustrations of what information means in information theory. Information is what you don't expect next. Information is that which you can't predict. And Claude Shannon has a very elegant mathematical equation for it. But if you think of the information in a Beethoven symphony as compared with Baroque chamber music, or the information in the first 70 seconds of The Prisoner compared with the first half hour of a George Stevens movie, you have a pretty clear idea of what information means mathematically. Um, Andrew are calculating all the information in the world in 1 AD. Why he picked 1 AD, I don't know. It's a symptom of Western chauvinism. Westerners are still hung up on the historical figure of Yeshua ben Yosef, whom the Goys call Jesus Christ. They, they can't even get his name right, but they date everything from what they think was his birthday. And that's off by at least four years and probably nine. But anyway, this, uh, this liberal rabbi with a weird sense of humor, Yeshua ben Yosef, uh, is the starting point for Angela's calculations. How many of you saw The Last Temptation of Christ? I thought, Scorsese, I thought Scorsese created an entirely new art form that combines the movie with the happening. Uh, some people are very cynical. They think, uh, you know, Scorsese showed the film to some of the leading fundamentalists on television, some of the leading televangelists, to get their approval, he said. And of course, they didn't approve it. They all, they all went through the roof screaming and hollering and telling all their uh, followers to go out and picket the movie. And so uh, Scorsese got millions and millions of dollars of free publicity. He didn't have to pay these idiots anything. They gave him the publicity free. And most people think, gee, that was a shrewd business move on his part. But it was more than a business move. It was a great artistic maneuver to incorporate the opposition into the work of art. Because when you go see The Last Temptation of Christ, first you gotta pass these uh, idiots on the street who are yelling, don't go in, it's a work of Satan, protect your soul, don't be contaminated, the devil is behind this, and uh, Universal Studios is the center of hell, and uh, all that stuff. And uh, this is not the Messiah, he's a terrible man, he's not like the Messiah should be. And then you go into the movie and you see the same people in the movie. 
And they're saying to Yeshua ben Yosef or Jesus Christ, or however you want to pronounce his name, they're saying, you're not our idea of a Messiah. You don't behave like the Messiah should behave. We don't trust you. And then they crucify him. And when they're all through crucifying him, and the movie is over, you come out and they're outside the theater again yelling, he's not the real Messiah, he's a fake, he's a phony, we don't like that kind of Messiah. And so the, you got this wraparound, this strange loop, they're in the movie and outside, they're in the movie and outside the movie at the same time, commenting on themselves. Scorsese has created a whole new art form. I, I tried to do that years ago, I tried to write a play that would provoke a riot. And it didn't work, but uh, I'll, I'll try again. Scorsese has inspired me. And anyway, starting, uh, starting from uh, the birthday of Yeshua ben Yosef, uh, 1 AD, um, uh, Andola calculated how long it took information to double. And uh, since we're starting from the birthday of Jesus Christ, as they call them on the late 40 channels on the TV screen. Uh, I call this uh, One Jesus, because scientific units are always named after uh, some, like the Ohm is named after Ohm, the Farad is named after Faraday, and so on. And uh, it took 1,500 years to double, and we got two Jesus by 1,500. Uh, at, at that point, um, well, power had been moving steadily westward from Thailand, Cambodia, from the beginning of the Bronze Age. By 1 AD, power was definitely centered in Rome, and so was knowledge, because all the knowledge of the world was coming into Rome through the Silk Road, which went to India and brought in the knowledge of China, too. Uh, by, by 1500, the center of knowledge and power was the northern Italian city-states, especially those where the Medici Bank uh, ran things and built all those great northern Italian universities where the scientific revolution began with Leonardo and Galileo and so on. Uh, the next doubling, which gave us four Jesus, occurred by 1750. And by then, the center of knowledge and power was in the British Isles. If you were to make a graph of the discovery of the chemical elements, the 92 elements of which everything in the universe is formed, You'd find the first nine were discovered in Asia before 1 AD. Then there were a few discovered in Southern Europe, and from then on they were all discovered in Northern Europe until we get to modern times when they were all discovered at the University of Berkeley, uh, except for a few at Caltech. Uh, but that's, that's running a little bit ahead of the story. You find this westward trajectory whenever you study the advance of knowledge and the accumulation of power and capital. Capital is knowledge. Uh, that's one of the most fundamental errors in the modern world is to think capital is money. Uh, just imagine what would happen if all the uh, money, stocks, bonds, checks, etc. vanished overnight. Now we'd have a hell of a state of chaos where people were fighting over who owned what uh, and so on. But the world, uh, the fundamental human world would not be changed. Everything we've created and our upward rise from uh, the caves would still be here. All the industrial plant, all the scientific laws, all the books, all the paintings, all the music would all still be here. But imagine if all the real capital disappeared, all the real capital, which is human knowledge, if all that disappeared, we'd have no roads, we'd have no cars, we'd have no stereos. Uh, we wouldn't know, we wouldn't be cooking our food because that required knowledge to learn how to cook food. We wouldn't have cups and uh, plates and sauces and tables and so on. We would be back in the Stone Age again. 
Uh, so that's the difference between money capital and real capital. Real capital is knowledge that benefits or accelerates some aspect of human life. Money is just tickets for the exchange of capital. And it is capital that has been moving steadily westward and mildly northward throughout history. So by 1750, we had four Jesus, and the center of power and knowledge was the British Isles. By 1900, we had eight J, or eight Jesus. It had doubled again, and the center of power was very definitely in the Boston, New York uh, banking firms and universities. Uh, in 1892, Brooks Adams wrote The Law of Civilization and Decay, the first book which pointed out this westward trajectory of capital. He didn't connect it with the westward trajectory of knowledge, but he did notice this westward movement of capital, and he predicted that by 1950, the British Empire would collapse and be replaced by an American empire, which has happened. Uh, as a matter of fact, knowledge doubled again by 1950, and we had 16J. Um, by 1960, knowledge doubled again, and we had 32J. By 1967, knowledge doubled again, and we had 64J. By 1973, knowledge doubled again, and we had 128J. Uh, the periodicity is 1,500 years, 250 years, 150 years, 50 years, 10 years, 7 years, 6 years. And uh, looking at the number of uh, patents granted every year, the number of new mathematical theorems published every year and so on, it's moving faster and faster. Its knowledge is probably doubling every couple of years now. The von Neumann computer, about which I was waxing so lyrical a few moments ago, is, uh, is already becoming obsolete. The von Neumann computer is a linear sequential device and uh, can only think about one thing at a time. If your brain operated like a von Neumann computer, you couldn't chew gum and walk across the street at the same time. Uh, you'd have to stop chewing gum before you could walk across the street. You couldn't, uh, you couldn't remember a movie and eat your food at the same time if your brain was a von Neumann computer. The human brain does hundreds and sometimes thousands of processes simultaneously. And that is beginning to happen uh, with the connection machine, which was designed by Daniel Hill, Hillis of MIT. There are 30 connection machines in existence now, but they are duplicating as fast as the Norway rat. And uh, they are going to replace the old linear computer because they, uh, there's, uh, there's a connection machine at MIT which does 16,000 processes simultaneously. There's a connection machine belonging to the thinking machine company, which does 64,000 processes simultaneously. Uh, the number will be going up faster every year. Um, the speed of uh, travel has increased a thousand times since 1900. Uh, speed of communication has increased a million times. Everything is moving faster. We are moving on a, a wave of tremendous acceleration that seems to be built into the human species. When I spoke earlier about the Norway rat, I was trying to indicate that uh, this randy little rodent uh, seems to have a genetic program for ubiquity. It was not satisfied with one environment. Most mammals never get more than 10 miles from the place where they're born. 
the Norway rat has spread itself over the whole planet and, as I said, is now found in intercontinental jets and I'm sure will be found in space cities within the next 15 years. The human race seems to have a similar program for ubiquity, for going everywhere, and another program that the Norway rat doesn't have, which is for continuous mutation to different levels of functioning with an acceleration factor built in. Hundreds of thousands of years of tribal life, a few thousand years of agricultural life, a few hundred years of industrial life, and now a whole new stage of evolution is opening up. People who try to calculate these trajectories in terms of the accelerations involved all get a little bit woozy after a while and they end up sounding a little bit goofy, uh, which, uh, which sometimes happens to me now that I think of it. Uh, Terence McKenna, whom some of you may have heard of. Terence McKenna calculated a great many trajectories and decided that in the year 2012, we'll be going through a new evolutionary mutation every nanosecond. I don't know what the hell that means, but that is the way the trajectories are pointing. It's, uh, it's a kind of curious coincidence and an amusing coincidence that Jose Arguilla, studying the Mayan calendar, concluded that there's a new rock group called the Harmonica Virgins are going to appear that year, or, or did I get that a little bit mixed up? Oh, it's the Harmonic Convergence, yeah, but it's the same year, 2012. Uh, before the French Revolution, average human lifespan was uh, 27 years. When Engels wrote The Condition of the Working Class in England, average uh, lifespan among the working class was 37 years. That was a about a hundred years after the French Revolution, a little less than a hundred. Uh, around 1900, average lifespan uh, throughout the Western democracies was 50 years. Uh, now it's 73 years and increasing more rapidly all the time. Uh, in England, a 1976 survey showed there were over 300 people alive in England who were over a hundred years old. Ten years later, in 1986, they found the number had increased to 3,000. Uh, there is more research being done on life extension uh, in this decade than throughout all human history previously. We are all going to live, barring accidents, uh, we are all going to live a lot longer than anybody ever lived in previous history. While these accelerations are going on, we are going to be going through mutations equivalent to the changeover from tribal to agricultural to industrial uh, to the information age, we're going to live through changes of that magnitude. And how are we going to adjust to it? Well, that's what Alvin Toffler calls future shock. How do we adjust to it? Well, we are, we are mutating too. Uh, I want to say a few words about the uh, evolutionary function of stupidity. Uh, I, I have been rather critical of stupidity in some of my books, and some people think I have a, a grudge against stupid people or something like that. Now, far from it, I'm one of the stupidest people I know, and so how can I dislike the stupid? Uh, I know I'm stupid because um, almost everybody has definite answers to most of the questions I'm still uncertain about, so they must all be a lot smarter than me to have arrived at definite answers already. I'm surprised at how, how many people there are between the ages of 18 and 24 who know so much more than I do, uh, for instance. Uh, but uh, the, the evolutionary uh, function of stupidity is that it forces the intelligent to get more intelligent. Um, uh, it's the pogroms 
that have created the uh, legendary and probably somewhat factual intellectual acuity of the Jewish people. Uh, Einstein created relativity and escaped from Hitler. Uh, the Jewish people have created thousands of important ideas and escaped from thousands of pogroms. Uh, to take a less uh, uh, horrendous example, uh, consider the outstanding example of stupidity in the 1960s, the banning of LSD research. Um, uh, at Harvard, Timothy Leary had reversed the recidivism rate of Massachusetts convicts in a study. He had shown that convicts given LSD in the proper set and setting detached from their conditioned and imprinted criminal programs and developed entirely new neurological circuits and became law-abiding citizens. A follow-up study a year later showed that 80% uh, of Leary's convicts were still on the streets, uh, not convicted of new crimes. Uh, the, the national average is that 90% of convicts are back in prison one year after release. The recidivism rate in this country is 90%. Uh, Leary uh, almost entirely reversed that. This was the biggest breakthrough in the history of behavior change. So naturally, the government made it illegal. <laughs> if, if one expects stupidity of the government, one could predict a result like that. There were a lot of other researchers doing fascinating things with LSD. They were curing alcoholism with it at several hospitals, for instance. And uh, people were learning languages faster than ever in some research. Uh, when all this research was stopped, uh, this drove the, uh, the researchers who were fascinated by uh, these consciousness mutations into other areas. So John Lilly invented the isolation tank or the float tank. And it turns out with the float tank you can produce fantastic changes in consciousness. It, it has been shown, you can measure it with uh, modern devices, you can show that people's brain waves move down from beta through alpha to theta to delta while they're in a float tank. When you get down to delta, your body is being shot full of endorphins, which means that you, your immunological system is given a big boost, and your brain is being shot full of new neurotransmitters produced by the delta state, so you're going to come out of it, and for the next three days, you'll be getting new ideas you never thought of before. Uh, how many people float regularly? You know what I'm talking about. Uh, floating, uh, no matter where you go in the modern world, you find there's a place where you can rent a float tank. Uh, you find them in, uh, not just in California, you can find them in backward places like New York. You can even find them, you can even find them in Berlin. There are places you go in and rent a float. Others who were driven, well, Stan Groth was doing LSD research in Czechoslovakia. He got, uh, he came to the United States because he was seeking greater scientific freedom. <laughs> well, I guess Stan was naive in those days. Uh, when he found out he couldn't do LSD research in the United States either, he uh, started researching other techniques, and he's developed a whole new technique based on Reiki and breathing and yogic uh, techniques together with music at a decibel level, never before heard on land or sea, even at a heavy metal concert. And this produces fantastic <coughs> consciousness changes too. Uh, others went into biofeedback. Tim Leary, being an Irishman, refused to let the government tell him what the hell he could research and couldn't research and went on fighting until they put him in prison, whereupon Leary got cured, as they say in Texas. And uh, since he came out, he's uh, been uh, engaged in the creation of computer software to change consciousness. 
and uh, the, many of the people in the biofeedback field have gone on to work on direct brain change. Biofeedback uh, requires uh, a lot of concentration and uh, hard work and so on, and uh, why bother with all that if you can build in a shortcut? And so we've got machines like the Endomax. You just plug the two electrodes to your mastoid bones, and uh, electric current flows through your hypothalamus, and you immediately start generating neuropeptides like there's no tomorrow. And the neuropeptides uh, act as neurotransmitters in the brain, so you get a lot of new ideas in the next couple of days, and they act as uh, uh, neuropeptides and endorphins in the body and give your immunological system a boost. Others have come up with devices like the uh, Synchro Energizer, which uses flashing lights and sound at the same rhythm. And it turns out you can adjust just by turning the dial. You move your consciousness from the beta state to the alpha, to the delta, to, to, to the theta, to the delta. And at each level, you're in a different type of reality. Uh, it turns out that throwing molecules at your brain is a very clumsy and inefficient way to alter consciousness. What we've got to do is work on the electronic level. As Tim Leary has been saying lately, uh, electrons are to the 80s what molecules what are the 60s. Uh, the, these machines are accelerating all the time. Uh, pretty soon, there's a machine called the Mind Mirror, which shows you how much uh, alpha, uh, how much beta, alpha, delta, and theta you've got in each hemisphere, and you've got guides showing various patterns, and you just look at the patterns and try to duplicate them on the screen using that as a feedback device. This one pattern is typical of a Zen master. It looks like an upside-down pair. You can sit there with the mind mirror and gradually approximate to the upside-down pair. And your brain is changing and mutating while you're doing that. Now, you combine that technology with something like the Synchro Energizer, and it's obvious that within three years outside, we are going to have a machine where you uh, sit down with a computer keyboard and you plug in the type of consciousness you want. You just type in how much alpha in the right lobe, how much beta in the left lobe, and so on. You get the exact program of what you want, and your brain goes into that. This can't be more than three or four years away. I've spoken to a lot of the researchers in this field. Some of them think they're going to have it next Tuesday after lunch. Uh, the people in the, the gerontology field uh, think life extension is, is coming in a, in a couple of years. Uh, we are going through a fantastic mutation where we're moving off this planet. We're learning to raise our intelligence by altering our, by uh, programming our brains for higher functioning, and we're expanding our lifespan. And so we've got uh, space migration, intelligence increase, life extension, which gives you Timothy Leary's well-known slogan, smile. But all that is going on while, while we're passing through dozens of other mutations at the same time. In the 1890s, uh, well, a pioneer futurist calculated that New York would be abandoned by 1922 because the horse manure would be up to the third floor by then. Uh, he was projecting one variable forward, the increase in population, but he was leaving out the fact that technology is accelerating. It turns out New Yorkers aren't being destroyed by horseshit, they're being destroyed by automobile fumes, just like, uh, just like us lucky people in Los Angeles. But that too will pass. Pretty soon people will be working at home and they will be driving these cars around all the time. Um, Einstein's brain survives. That's at a university in New York, a medical school. 
Sometime soon, somebody's going to get a cell out of Einstein's brain. It'll probably be done with a federal grant through the National Institute of Mental Health and so on, a funded research project. I prefer to think it'll be some, some mad scientist with a hunchbacked assistant creeping in at night. But uh, we're going to get a cell out of Einstein's brain, and then we're going to take the DNA and the RNA, and we're going to have Einstein DNA and RNA and put it in a little pill, you see? And you take the Einstein pill, and you've got Einstein DNA and Einstein RNA, and you start to act more like Einstein and think more like Einstein. Um, you can get brain waves from people who are still alive. You don't need to manufacture the pill. Uh, you can get John Lilly's brain waves, uh, map them out, put them in the computer, type out the keyboard, and get those brain waves going through your brain, and you are thinking, feeling, perceiving like John Lilly. Uh, or if you want a really funky thing, you can get Rajanisha's brain waves. If, if you're into bum trips, if you're an adventurer and want to see how much you can stand, you can take a George Bush brain wave and, and live through the last 20 years of CIA machinations and so on. We have, throughout history, we have been inside an iron triangle. Lifespan is limited, very limited. Most mammals uh, uh, die within 30 years. Most human beings have died within 30 years. And it's not just high infant mortality. You look back in the past uh, centuries, you find there was high infant mortality, but there was high mortality between infancy and 10, and high mortality between 10 and 20, and high mortality between 20 and 30, and by then almost everybody was dead. We we're extending that all the time. The AIDS epidemic has this strange side effect that more money is going into immunological research than ever before in history and the immunological system is the key to longevity. When the cure for AIDS is found it will undoubtedly mean that we're all going to live longer and I don't mean increments of 10 or 20 years, I mean doubling, tripling, maybe quadrupling human lifespan. And so that side of the triangle is becoming more and more elastic, stretching more and more. And the other, the second side of the triangle that limits us is space. The average mammal never travels more than 10 miles from where it's born. The average human being throughout history has never traveled more than 10 miles from where they were born. In Ireland, you can find people who are still living that way. They've not, there are people in Dublin who have never visited other neighborhoods of Dublin. Now, we're getting used to jetting all over the world. Uh, I'm continually meeting people in Amsterdam who I met uh, the year before in Boulder, Colorado, or I run into somebody in New York who tells me about somebody I met uh, the last time I was in London, and, uh, and, I'm, and uh, you don't have to be rich to do this. Uh, uh, people, are, people are just traveling more all the time because they stop defining travel as a luxury and defined it as a necessity, so they fit it into their budgets and they do it. More and more people are traveling further and further. Now, uh, most of our communication technology is in outer space now. The rest of our technology will be moving into outer space in the next 10 years, and we'll be moving into outer space after it. Space colonies will be up there in the next 15 years, full of hundreds and thousands of people, and next there'll be millions of people. Jerry O'Neill has already designed a space colony for 4 million people. The whole thing is designed, and it can be built with the technology we now have. It doesn't require any breakthroughs into new technology. All it requires is the four million people who really want to do it, putting their energy together and taking off. And so uh, one side of the triangle is 
is space, the other side is time, we're getting more and more time, we're getting more and more space, and the third side is the innate limitations on human consciousness and intelligence. Throughout history, we have been like the Norway rats in the behaviorist laboratory. We've been conditioned mechanisms, imprinted and conditioned. We follow mechanical programs that are imprinted in points of imprint vulnerability and other mechanical programs that are conditioned by repetition. And we get conditioned uh, to go around saying, yes, the king must be obeyed. Yes, the pope must be obeyed. Or we can get conditioned to go around saying, we have a democracy. Now we are free. Well, we're still robots. And we're still following the same robot programs. Now, with modern neuroscience advancing so rapidly in so many areas, uh, these brain machines I was talking about and dozens of other new insights that are coming along, new insights and tools all the time, the intelligence increase part of Leary's equation, consciousness has no limits. So if space has no limits, time has no limits, and consciousness has no limits, we're not in the triangle anymore. We are expanding to infinity in all directions. And you've got to keep that thought in mind if you're going to prepare for the 21st century, because the future is coming at you faster all the time. Fortunately, you only have to deal with it one day at a time. But Whenever you hear somebody say, be here now, remember, anything that becomes a cliche eventually makes people stupid. And that has become a cliche in the last 20 years. You've got to deal with the future because that is where you are going to be spending the rest of your life. Okay, we'll now have a break while everybody recovers from this, and then we'll have a question and answer period. Now I will entertain questions, and hopefully some of the questions will entertain me. Uh, who wants to be the goat and go first? And yes. When you do that, speak up a little bit too. Please. Sure. Thank you. Um, I guess I have a question about the type of pickup that looks very interesting. Could you tell me more about uh, the secret society or whatever it is called, the Illuminati, that, uh, that these types are about? Look. Ooh, oh, the Illuminati. <laughs> Uh, the Illuminati is about the most controversial subject on the planet, and when I'm asked about the Illuminati, I, uh, I, I'm never, I, I always have an inner struggle whether I should tell the truth or engage in a shameless put-on. Uh, uh, the, 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 um, the Illuminati was founded in Bavaria in 1776 by Adam Weishaupt, a former Jesuit. And it was a secret society within Freemasonry, which is already a secret society. So it was a secret within a secret. It has therefore aroused great curiosity, especially among paranoids. Uh, uh, the technique of the Illuminati has been copied many times. There was an Irish revolutionary group called the Molly Maguires, which uh, some of you may have heard of if you're into labor history or into Irish history. They were a secret society within the ancient order of Hibernians, which was a secret society. So they were a secret society within a secret society too. It's, it's a very clever technique. In Italy recently, we had uh, Pei Due, or an English P2, which was a secret society within uh, the Grand Orient Lodge of Egyptian Freemasonry, which is the biggest Freemasonic lodge on the European continent outside of England. In England, the biggest lodge is, of course, the Scotch Rite. 
the Paidoi was a secret society within Italian Freemasonry, within the Grand Orient Lodge. And uh, it was run, oddly enough, by three people who were Knights of Malta. The Knights of Malta are a secret society of Catholic uh, lay entities. Note how I avoided human chauvinism and didn't say lay persons. Uh, the Knights of Malta is a secret society of Catholic lay entities devoted to undoing the Protestant Reformation and restoring the Pope to his rightful position as ruler of the whole Western world. As a matter of fact, the whole world, now that they found out there's more than the Western world. And uh, it is my hypothesis that Pei Due was not a Masonic conspiracy, but a Knights of Malta conspiracy, which molded its way, uh, virused its way into Italian Freemasonry, so the Freemasons would get, would get the blame for it if the, if the lid ever blew off. Um, there are many links between Pei Due and the Illuminati, which has led some people to speculate that uh, the Illuminati itself was a Catholic conspiracy, that Weishaupt never left the Jesuits, and that the Illuminati was a Catholic conspiracy within Masonry. Uh, the world is full of strange loops like that. The top uh, CIA informant in the Soviet embassy in Washington during the 70s was known by the code name Fedora, and he was regarded by the CIA as their best source of information for what's going on in ruling circles in Russia. And the FBI accidentally stumbled on evidence that Fedora was a KGB uh, colonel whose job was infiltrating the CIA and feeding them false information. <laughs> the, the, CIA, the FBI notified the CIA of this by telephone immediately. Uh, that sounds naive, but that, that, at that time the FBI believed that their line to the CIA was untappable. However, within a few minutes after they notified the CIA of Fedora's role as a KGB mole within the CIA, Fedora left the Russian embassy for the airport and flew back to Moscow immediately, which left the CIA with two alternative gloomy hypotheses to consider. One is that their untappable phone line wasn't untappable, and the other is that there's another KGB mole within the CIA high enough up to know exactly what's going on and defend the other moles if one of them, is, uh, one of them has their cover blown. Um, that did happen in England. Uh, England has had since the 50s a series of uh, about 20 scandals in which top officials turned out to be moles for the Soviets. Uh, this uh, even extended into MI6, the, uh, which is the British equivalent of the CIA. There have been about six uh, people from uh, MI6 who've been exposed to Soviet moles. And then the head of MI6 died and a book came out claiming he was a Soviet mole too. And there's a lot of good evidence to support it, but the best argument for it is how did these six other moles get so high in British intelligence if they weren't protected by a mole at an even higher level. Um, uh, these, these, are, these are fascinating uh, topics to me as a writer of uh, novels of suspense and intrigue, however ugly they are, they make for good plot lines. And that, that's my fascination with the Illuminati, Pei Due, the CIA, and similar clandestine operations. Is that enough? Of an answer, do you want more? What did the Illuminati actually do? What's the 
Well, they, find, they founded Phi Beta Kappa, for instance. Uh, according, to, uh, according to some Federalist writers, Jefferson was an Illuminati agent within the American government, but then there were writers who claimed the Illuminati financed the Russian Revolution. Uh, there are all sorts of theories about the Illuminati. Well, what they actually did was spread radical ideas. Uh, well, how, how much else they did is a matter of uh, debate, yes. Where is Carl Oglesby nowadays and what is he doing? Uh, he's a professor of history at Boston University. And the last time I saw him was in a discussion at New York University last week where Carl and I gave a talk uh, on conspiracies from Daily Plaza to the present. And we discussed Carl's uh, model according to which the, there is no, uh, the, the American ruling class is not a class. There are actually two ruling classes in the United States that are trying to annihilate each other. The Yankees, which is the New England, New York banking houses, and the Cowboys, which is the Western entrepreneurs who uh, started the aerospace industry, the oil uh, industry, and the computer industry. And uh, uh, Oglesby's model is that these two uh, are behind all the things that we can't understand about modern American politics. It's the result of the warfare between these two. And I've added to that, I've generalized that to a uh, hypothesis about all of history, that all of history consists of wars between declining Eastern powers and rising Western powers, uh, which is caused by the gradual westward migration of ideas and the capital that results from the ideas. And it turned out Carl is as much a fan of my books as I am of his, which uh, illustrates Edmund Wilson's theory of the shock of recognition. One genius always recognizes another. Or, or it illustrates that people with the same form of mental illness tend to be attracted to each other. Yes. You know, the idea that power and money moving west, uh, could you say now that probably Japan is next in line, it's moved so far west? That yeah, it certainly looks that way. Everybody in Silicon Gulf that I know spends all their time worrying about what the Japanese are doing. And so it certainly looks like the, uh, there has been this movement all the way around the world, and now it looks like it's shifting from California to Japan, but at the same time, uh, there's a feedback factor. Uh, new knowledge travels back faster eastward than it ever did in previous history. So knowledge is going around the world in two directions at the same time, and meanwhile it's expanding into outer space. So I, I think uh, the, the specific rim culture that uh, William Irwin Thompson has written about, uh, the anthropologist, he talks about this emerging culture the Pacific Rim, which is made up of Japan, Australia, California, and a few others like British Columbia and Alaska and all the Hawaiian Islands and so on, it seems to be the culture that's shaping the future right now. But the Pacific Rim culture is just the terrestrial part of it. If you take a wider framework, there's an extraterrestrial culture emerging as our technology moves into space and we're going to move into space with it. Well, my trajectory of the future is the brightest, uh, boldest, uh, people are going to settle um, Lagrange point five in the next 20 to 50 years. And uh, in the next 100 years, uh, the Lagrange area will get so crowded and bureaucratized and uh, conformist and stultified that the brightest and boldest will move out and settle in the asteroid belt. 
and by then we'll have star travel so by the time that gets bureaucratized and centralized they'll move out of the solar system entirely and that leads me to Heinlein's law the intelligence of a species is directly proportional to the distance from the planet where it started out I, I imagine our, uh, by the time we get to the other end of the galaxy that part of the human race will be the brightest uh, part and uh, well, just compare New York with California, and you'll see what I mean. Uh, and New York is the uh, New York intellectual discussion is: Can we reconcile Freud with Marx? Uh, they're, they're living back in the 1920s or around 1900. Actually, these are the hot intellectual issues in New York, and things like that. And uh, Nietzsche wrote about um, the decadent phase of every culture. The decadent phase is when people start writing things like Ecclesiastes, uh, the sun riseth and the sun goeth down and there is nothing new under the sun, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Now that's the way European intellectuals sounded at the end of the last century. That's because Europe was on the decline. Now New York intellectuals sound like that because New York is on the decline. The only place you'll find the Dionysian spirit is as you move westward. It starts in Boulder, Colorado and extends steadily westward to the Hawaiian Islands and Japan. <clears throat> yes? Um, <clears throat> I say this in New York too. It makes them mad as hell. <clears throat> yes? Is because um, I read uh, very, the various newspapers and listen to various uh, television and radio programs, I seem to see a greater casual acceptance of multiple conflicting realities on the part of people, especially in, in this country. Do you see that? Do you see that approaching, say, where, the way it is in, in uh, many parts of Europe where we have access to more greater variety of realities than we do often here? That's, uh, that's a very interesting question. I see it. A lot, but I don't trust what I see because I see a specially segmented view of the of the American public. Uh, what, what, I, what I see, if I judged America by what I see on my lecture tours, uh, nobody ever would have voted for Ronald Reagan. Uh, one thing, for uh, specifically, is at the same time we've got the the urine tests and uh, the DEA, or actually the customs officials, seizing research vessels because of marijuana cigarettes found on board. We also have police chiefs, mayors, and governors seriously discussing legalizing cocaine. And mm -hmm. these are being reported in the same newspapers with nobody <laughs> saying, look, look, and aren't these two different? <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, the, uh, that, that is, uh, uh, I regard my most important uh, contribution to uh, literature or knowledge or comedy or whatever I'm engaged in is uh, popularizing the multi-model approach uh, of modern physics which is uh, don't look for the correct map look for the map that's most useful here and now and always remember it's not the true map for all eternity and be ready to change it and uh, when you stop to think that there's a Picasso statue in front of City Hall in Chicago it does seem that the world has mutated. Uh, well, what's the, what the hell is that Picasso statue doing in Chicago? Uh, where where the, the, the mayor, uh, when I was living in Chicago, the mayor was a, a gangster named Richard Daly, 
who was renowned for saying things like, the police are not here to create disorder, the police are here to maintain disorder. Uh, the, the man could not speak an intelligent, coherent sentence of English. Uh, his other famous declarations were, there is no ghetto in Chicago, and we're going to move everybody out of the ghetto. Uh, and yet they got this Picasso statue, which is a perfect example of multi-model uh, thinking. All of modern art, uh, Joyce's, Ulysses, uh, Citizen Kane, every field of modern art has this multiple uh, vision. But that Picasso statue, you walk around it and you see a great big Afghan dog. And you stand at another angle and you see a male and female face looking at each other. And you get to another angle and you see a praying mantis. And um, to the extent that people are getting used to the idea that you can see things in a variety of ways, uh, we are getting more sophisticated. But there are still a lot of people out there who can only see things one way. There's, all, there's altogether too many of them still left around. I collect not literature. Uh, it's a hobby with me. Uh, uh, one, one of my favorites that I received in the last month comes from Christians Awake in Montgomery, Alabama. Uh, boy, if they were awake, I'd rather be asleep. Uh, uh, they, I got a beautiful pamphlet from them called The Washington Monument and AIDS. And that title in itself is so beautiful. It, it, takes, it takes a very special mentality to see the connection. the connection. The connection between the Washington Monument and AIDS is, well, in the first place, if you look at the Washington Monument from above, what do you see? You see a circle with a dot in the middle. Now, that's the symbol of the Illuminati. It really was. That was the symbol the Illuminati used for themselves. And who does the Washington Monument commemorate? George Washington, a renowned and notorious Freemason. And when was it built? 1833. Why 33? Because there are 33 degrees in Freemasonry. And then they go on and prove the United States from evidence like that. The United States has been ruled by a Freemasonic cabal ever since the beginning. And what is Freemasonry? And therefore Freemasonry are behind gay pride. Therefore, we've got the AIDS epidemic. You see, you never realized George Washington's role in creating AIDS, did you? <laughs> then there's the truth missionaries of positive accord. Uh, I, I, get, I get literature from them. They, they, uh, and they make sense. I think they're right. And not that I believe them, but I think they understand the Bible better than Jerry Falwell or most of these televangelists. According to the truth missionaries of positive accord, Elohim in the first book of the Bible is plural. Well, I've heard that from a lot of Hebrew scholars. Elohim is plural. So there's not one God, there's at least two. And then on the basis of a great deal of analysis of the biblical verses, they show God is corporeal, not spiritual. The whole idea of God is spiritual is totally unbiblical. In the Bible, God walks through the Garden of Eden in the afternoon. Uh, God has a voice, God has eyes and ears, God has a womb, God has breasts to suckle with, and uh, it turns out that, that God is uh, two, Mr. God and Mrs. God. <laughs> and, uh, and Mrs. God has been deliberately suppressed by a, by a male conspiracy throughout the ages, but she's right there when you start analyzing the Hebrew, and she got into the Christian church too, Hagia Sophia in Greek, which gave us the English word Holy Spirit, Hagia Sophia is female. The Trinity is God, Mrs. God, and their little boy, Yeshua. And I think they're absolutely right. But uh, it sounds pretty weird when they start explaining it. Uh, you know, how big is God? Well, they figure he's about 18 feet tall. 
because uh, if Godzilla walked through the Garden of Eden, there wouldn't be a tree left standing. You know what happens when Godzilla walks through Tokyo? You know, God is not quite as big as Godzilla or King Kong, and uh, God is male and female. It says in the Bible, male and female. God, God, God's plural, creates the human race. Male and female created the gods, the human race. And uh, so the gods are male and female. And we are made in the image of Elohim, the gods, male and female. And uh, then they demonstrate how the Immaculate Conception occurred. Uh, God, God, God could not masturbate because that's a sin. So God has sucked him off. And then the sperm was conveyed to Mary. And uh, this makes much more sense than anything I've ever heard from Jerry Falwell. Uh, these, these may be the only people in the Christian world who understand the Bible. A lot of Kabbalists will whisper things like that to you, but uh, these people have figured it out on their own and are trying to enlighten the rest of the Christian world. I fear their path will be a thorny one. Uh, next question. Yes. Um, when you talk about the uh, people working out of their homes, uh, do you foresee there are going to be some changes in, in the type of places people live? Because one of the first things you think about, particularly if people are hooked into all these machines, is that you're getting, you have all these new ideas, yet you're getting antsy and you're getting kind of a cabin fever type thing happen. So is there a way that we're going to be able to design things, homes and buildings that are going to be... Yes, uh, Buckminster Fuller started designing homes uh, 50 years ago that could be taken apart, put in a can, and moved anywhere. Uh, when you don't have to go to an office every day, you can live anywhere you want. And uh, the idea of buying land uh, is becoming obsolete. Uh, the capitalists themselves realize it. Uh, what's behind all this big condominium movement? It's not just another scam to transfer money from our pockets to theirs. It's they realize land isn't worth shit anymore. Uh, so they're selling it to us, finally. Uh, because what's really important is information. And that's why they keep building in more and more safeguards on their computers to keep the information from getting out. It's information that's important, not land. And people will be traveling more and more every year. Uh, the, first, uh, the first one to fly the Atlantic was Lindbergh, 1928. In 1978, 200 million people flew the Atlantic. I don't know what it is in 88, but it's probably about 4 million by now. These things are all exponential. People are traveling more and more, and people will be carrying their houses with them in uh, big aluminum cans, put the house together when they arrive where they want to be. Uh, spend a year in Maui, and then spend a year in British Columbia, and then spend a year in Amsterdam, and uh, I like it. <laughs> yes? It requires tremendous resources to sustain life in space. How are you going to support space colonies when the Earth is polluting itself to death? Um, that question has uh, about a dozen assumptions in it, all of which I challenge. Uh, let's see, where do we start on that one? Um, in the first place, we can build whole ecological systems. Uh, there are th millions of people who have ecological systems inside their houses. They're known as fish tanks. And uh, you don't need to build an ecological system to keep a dog. But if you want to keep tropical fish, you've got to build an ecological system for them. We've been practicing that for a long time. 
uh, we have gotten to the stage where we are building ecological systems for many animals. And uh, there are experiments of this sort being done in, in Australia and Arizona and many other places. A space colony will be designed in such a way that it will be a balanced ecological system. And the designs, there are many alternative designs and they're being improved all the time. The, uh, there's a project in Australia called the Healthy City in which uh, um, people, uh, scientists from all over Australia and some from as far away as Norway are involved in designing a city that will be totally healthy for the people who live in it, that will not only be free of health hazards such as are built into current day cities, but will have healthy, positively uh, health, health beneficial effects built into their very architecture. Uh, Buckminster Fuller started thinking that way as far back as the 1920s. His houses were intended to be healthy houses, and he was talking about building healthy cities. Uh, the fact that under the present uh, monetary uh, system, things are done in a stupid way doesn't mean that things have to be done in a stupid way. There are more intelligent ways to do things. Most of human history shows that we only do things the intelligent way after we've tried every possible stupid way and found out that none of them work. But we've just about gotten to that point. There aren't that many more stupid things we can do. So we're, we are gradually learning to do things in a more intelligent way. Um, the, uh, the, one of the major benefits of uh, space colonization uh, almost certainly will, will be making solar power available 24 hours a day all over the planet. Uh, the people who have their money invested in atoms and oil keep telling us solar power will take another 40 years to develop. That's because they have their investment in atoms and oil and they want to get their money back on their investment. But solar power is practical right now, today. Uh, my friend Carl Hess has an 85% solar-powered house that he built himself in West Virginia. A few years ago, I met a former district attorney of Santa Barbara who has a, uh, a solar-powered house. I think that was 90% solar-powered. Um, there's a solar-powered neighborhood uh, or suburb of Dallas right now. Uh, in places like Ireland and Norway and lots of uh, northern latitudes, uh, solar power is not very practical because of the high uh, number of days per year in which it's raining and overcast and dark and gloomy, and that's why they have the highest suicide rate in the world in those countries. And it's depressing to live there. Uh, those places can have solar power too if we uh, have uh, space stations up there collecting solar power 24 hours a day and beaming it down to the earth forever it's needed. And when we've got cheap solar power coming from space, uh, there'll be no incentive to use polluting uh, uh, energy sources such as coal and oil and all those uh, things that we're running out of anyway. Uh, like I say, we always do the intelligent things when we run out of stupid things to do, and we're going to run out of coal and oil in the near future, so we're going to have to start doing more intelligent things. Uh, yes? Uh, can you talk a little bit about how, how quickly or how rapidly you would see the evolution of the legalization of drugs? Um, that's, a, that's a hard one. Back, uh, if you asked me that 20 years ago, I'd say, oh, in the next five years. And uh, I was obviously wrong, uh, which illustrates the cosmic schmuck principle. Uh, uh, the, cos the cosmic schmuck principle is uh, 
If you realize you've been a cosmic schmuck a lot of times in your life, you'll begin to get a glint of a suspicion you might be a cosmic schmuck now, too, and you won't be too sure of yourself. Uh, I find this a very useful principle uh, in keeping me from taking myself too seriously. It's like Gary Jeff's distinction between objectively hopeless idiots and subjectively hopeless idiots. <laughs> the subjectively hopeless idiot knows he's a cosmic schmuck and is trying to do something about it. The objectively hopeless idiot thinks he has the answer to everything and therefore isn't trying to do anything about changing himself. So I'm happy to be a, a subjectively hopeless idiot. I've arrived at that stage anyway. I know how often I've been wrong. And so making a specific prediction about a thing like that is, I don't know. But uh, there are things, uh, in spite of the uh, increasing uh, violence and stupidity of the government's, quote, war on drugs, there are signs of the opposite sort appearing, like more and more conservatives are coming out for legalization. William Buckley, the intellectual giant of the right wing of America, has been in favor of legalization for five or seven years now, and he writes columns about it more and more frequently. And Milton Friedman, the, the economist uh, of the Reagan administration, the Nobel Prize winner in right-wing economics, monetarist theory, and Milton Friedman has come out for legalization. And the arguments have nothing to do with the First Amendment or libertarian theory or anything. It comes down to the very uh, concrete, uh, practical, pragmatic, fact that you can't enforce these laws and keeping these laws on the books is only making the mafia richer every year. When my father was young, uh, the mafia was a small gang of Italians in one neighborhood in New York who made their living by extorting money from other Italians who owned little shops like groceries and uh, butcher shops and whatnot, bar rooms. And the Mafia got to be a national and international multi-billion dollar mega corporation on the basis of these laws. The Mafia now has its own hotels, its own gambling casinos, it runs a large part of the restaurant business. You can't get in the restaurant business without buying your linens from the Mafia. They own their own banks, they own shares of banks, they own shares of movie studios. If we keep these laws on the books for another 10 years, another 15 years, we're eventually going to reach the point where the Mafia owns fucking everything. <laughs> and uh, even, 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 even conservatives are beginning to see that. The only way to prevent the total uh, Sicilianization of the United States, the, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the whole system of omerta and, uh, yeah, and like, you know, Miami is getting like Chicago was under alcohol prohibition. The, the drug enforcement agents carry machine guns, the drug runners carry machine guns. You can't walk out on the street. The innocent victims are, are getting killed more than the drug dealers or the drug uh, enforcement officers. And the only way we're going to stop that is by taking the profit motive out of it, by legalizing everything. And then taking all the money they've been spending on trying to enforce these idiotic laws and putting it into rehabilitation programs for people who do have drug problems. And uh, that, that makes so much sense that it's bound to be recognized eventually. But considering that the American people have eaten 1.8 times 10 to the 10th power McDonald's hamburgers and elected Richard Nixon twice and Ronald Reagan twice and George Bush and Quayle more recently, I don't know how long it will take common sense to get across. <laughs> yes. 
Yes, uh, where do you see um, Christianity evolving in the 21st century? Will it uh, continue to play a heavy role in, in political institutions? Um, all I can, all I can uh, give you is an opinion. Uh, Christianity has been falling apart for about 500 years. The United States was originally founded to be a non-Christian country. Uh, the Christian religion is conspicuously absent from the Declaration of Independence, which is a deist document that invokes nature's God, a term of the free-thinking deist philosophers of the 18th century. The Constitution doesn't mention the Christian God once and specifically prohibits the establishment of a religion. Um, uh, most of Europe is secular. Uh, in Sweden, uh, it's almost impossible to find a churchgoer, for instance. Um, of course, the whole communist world is officially atheistic, even though people still sneak off to Russian Orthodox churches. Um, I would say in the next hundred years, only the most uh, austere and intellectual forms of Buddhism are likely to survive. I, th I think fundamentalist Christianity, fundamentalist Islam, uh, fundamentalist everything, they're all going to collapse as the information, the information acceleration accelerates further. That's my guess, anyway. Yes? Do you see a collapse of the monetary system as it is, and if so, what will replace it? I've thought about that for a long time, and uh, I've heard all sorts of interesting proposals about what should replace the present monetary system. A lot of people, you know, uh, the bankers didn't always control money. They didn't always create money. Uh, Lord Cook in the Institutes of English Law says sovereignty inheres in the right to issue coinage because uh, the king was the only one who could issue coinage under the traditional system. Uh, that broke down in the 18th century and even more in the 19th century because so many governments were in the habit of debasing their coinage that they wouldn't trust one another. And into that vacuum moved the Rothschilds who had paper money that they would bank. And uh, gradually the governments found they trusted the bankers more than they trusted one another. And so the bankers acquired the, the, um, uh, the franchise on issuing money, which previously belonged to governments. And a lot of people think if we just gave the franchise back to governments, all our problems would be solved. But uh, since it was the government screwing up that turned it over to the bankers, I don't think that's a step forward. There's a lot of uh, proposals that we use computer money and we just make notations in our computers about who owes who what and abolish the banking system entirely. I think that's very likely going to happen eventually. I think in the meanwhile, we're going to go through an evolution. They've been talking in the European Parliament for about 15 years now about creating a European currency so you don't have to keep changing paper every time you cross a border in Europe. European countries are so small compared to the United States, it's until you've lived there, you don't realize how often you cross a border and have to change your money. And. Um, I think there will be a European currency, and then I think there will be a United Nations currency, and uh, the whole profit will come out of jiggling currencies against each other, which is how banks manage to become uh, so bloody rich and get so much power, is the constant jiggling of one currency against another. 
when I uh, when I lived in Ireland, my checks would come from uh, New York, from my agent in New York to Ireland, and then I'd cash them in an Irish bank. And uh, since the mail comes late in Ireland, I'd cash them the next day. And I used to think, gee, while I'm sleeping, those bastards in Hong Kong are changing the value of what I'm going to get at the bank tomorrow morning. <laughs> because they're all night long, they're negotiating on the values of currencies. Uh, right now, we have reached the point where most countries cannot pay the interest on the national debt anymore. Most countries owe the banks more than they can ever pay back. And that's been going on for nearly 10 years and with the increasing uh, publicity in the last five years, what the banks have been doing is loaning money to countries to allow them to pay the national debt, which means that the national debt gets larger and the interest goes on mounting and it's turning more and more into a, a gloomy imitation of the loan shark business that you find in the slums where the interest will eventually devour everything. And there's more and more talk about who's going to default first. Will it be Brazil, Argentina, Mexico? Who's it going to be? Uh, right, and maybe it'll be the United States. We're the number one debtor nation in the world right now, uh, thanks to what George Bush called voodoo economics before he had a religious conversion and accepted the site. He could believe in magic too. And uh, somewhere, somewhere down the line, there's going to be a point at which uh, nations just cannot pay the interest to the bankers, and there's got to be another backing for currency besides our faith and the magic of the banking system. And I imagine it will go by way of a UN currency to eventually to some kind of system where we abolish money entirely and we just keep records on our computers of uh, who owes who what. And of course, there'll be no interest on that. Uh, the, the, the computer programmers have no way of, of convincing us that uh, when we make a notation in our computer, we got to pay interest to somebody on that. So I think interest will disappear, and it's interest, by and large, that eats up uh, uh, the wealth of the world and creates uh, so much poverty in the midst of uh, ever-increasing wealth. So I, I see interest disappearing along with rent in the next hundred years. Yes? Uh, several weeks ago, uh, a couple people from PSYCOP were on Hour 25, and I happened to tape it, and I listened to it before reading the New Inquisition and after it. And uh, with that in mind, would you say a few words about Carl Sagan and perhaps throw in Martin Gardner and uh, James Randi while you're at it? Um, yes, uh, I, got, uh, I got an interesting letter today from a friend in Arizona. Uh, he said he, he started reading Martin Gardner because of reading my polemic against Martin Gardner. And he's decided to canonize Martin Gardner. He's made Martin Gardner a saint in his Church of Universal Agnosticism. And he refers to him as Saint Martin. And what converted him was uh, Gardner's uh, essay on Bell's Theorem, in which Gardner explains what Bell's Theorem means pretty clearly, and then says, this has no implications whatsoever for the real world. This only refers to the subatomic world. And he decided that Martin Gardner is a Sufi uh, an enlightened Sufi master who is teaching us by pretending to be a fool. And, and as we see through the, the, uh, this, uh, these logical fallacies he keeps putting out, we are forced to become more enlightened. Well, that's one interpretation of Martin Gardner. Another interpretation is he really does believe the things he writes. Um, 
The uh, a gardener is on record as saying he thinks Stanford Research Institute should be burned to the ground because of the kind of research they were doing there. Uh, I, I wrote the New Inquisition because I felt there was increasingly in PSYCOP that kind of spirit that they, they want to destroy the research they don't like, they want to drive researchers out of their jobs if they don't like the results of the research. Uh, they, they have that uh, attitude which we were talking about a little while ago of the we've got the one correct map and it never has to be revised and I call that fundamentalism. And I think the scientific world has entirely lost that, uh, except for a few cases like Carl Sagan. But uh, there is uh, there is sociologic there is a sociological study of psychop has been done, and the majority of members are not scientists. The majority of members are lay entities. The single profession most widely represented in psychop is stage magicians who have a hard job making a living these days uh, and Psychop is giving them an additional source of income. Uh, well, that's, that's vulgar Marxism, isn't it, looking into things like that. Um, but uh, there is not really much scientific, uh, they've never done any scientific research. Uh, they call the Committee for Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, but they never do scientific investigation. What they do is write uh, polemics against people whose ideas they don't like. They did one scientific study on astrology, and the fellow who wrote the study for them has been claiming ever since that they distorted what he wrote and they would not print the letter he wrote trying to correct their distortions. And that argument is still going on. Uh, but that's the only attempt they ever made at doing a scientific report, and they bungled it. And, uh, but I like Psychop because they provide, uh, a satirist needs targets. And if Psychop did not exist, I would create them. That's sort of the way I feel about Dan Quayle. I, I feel Dan Quayle, Psychop, for the Ayatollah Khomeini, people like that were put here to inspire me to, to flights of rhetoric and uh, irony and sarcasm that I would not achieve on my own without this inspiration. So I'm very grateful to all of them. And I mean that sincerely. Uh, a satirist cannot survive without targets uh, to satirize. Yes. How valid is free energy? What? You know, the free energy movement, the Joseph Newman free energy oh, movement. Oh, jo jo Joseph Newman and his, uh, yeah, I don't, uh, don't, don't ask me about that. I don't know what the hell to make of that. Uh, some people make great discoveries and when they're not recognized, they turn gradually paranoid. Um, like Wilhelm Reich, maybe, uh, possibly. Um, Joseph Newman sounds increasingly paranoid. And yet, on uh, CBS, I saw a car move, which CBS said, as far as they could find out, there was nothing in, uh, it was running on Joseph Newman's uh, magical uh, machine. Uh, unless CBS goofed up, uh, maybe he did make a real discovery. I don't know. I, 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 I'm even more agnostic about that than I am about most things. I would like to see more tests of Newman's claims. I'd like to see more tests and less rhetoric. I think that goes for all controversial ideas. I'd like to see more tests and less rhetoric about them all. Reich's orgone box, Newman's machine, the Tesla um, antennae that was supposed to bring infinite energy to the earth and uh, all these ideas. There should be more investigation and less name calling. And then we might find out which of these ideas are any good. Yes. 
Most of our themes tonight have been pretty widespread and global. I ask you to be uh, a little bit more personal. What if the parents of a five-year-old child came to you and showed you a child whose brain was much bigger than a normal kid's and showed other signs of basically conforming with a lot of expectations of the next evolutionary jump for the human species? How would you advise them to raise the kid? And this isn't a hypothetical question. <clears throat> How to raise a super child. <laughs> I would advise them to consult somebody who knows more about that than I do. <laughs> who knows about that? <laughs> Just because I'm up here on a platform doesn't mean I have the answer to every question anybody can think of. <clears throat> yes? Could you tell us a little about what you've been working on in the past year, your newest books, and what you're working on now? I, uh, I've been writing a lot of articles for Gnosis Magazine and for Critique and uh, for Magical Blend. I've been working on a screenplay for Axiom Entertainment. I've been developing a television series which may or may not get off the ground. And I finished the third of my historical novels, which is not called Nature and Nature's God anymore. It's just called Nature's God. I decided I like the shorter title better. And um, I just wrote an article on connection machines for a German magazine. Tomorrow I'm teaching a workshop at uh, the Mandala Bookstore. Then I go back to work on the screenplay. Uh, I have, uh, I'm doing my cosmic conspiracy game in January and in February I start traveling across the country on the lecture circuit again. I find it an interesting life. I think talking about it anymore would bore most of the audience, however. Next question. Yes. Yes, well, uh, what inspired you to write uh, the Aleister Crowley scrapbook? It's not out there for sale. The Alistair Crowley scrapbook? Is that yours? Is that yours? That's Colin Wilson. Oh. No, that's, that's, that, that's, uh, that's Cooked Wilson. I'm Roy Wilson. You, you gotta keep the two of us distinct. <laughs> yes? I don't know quite how to ask this, and there's probably assumptions in there, but in all of the exponential increases in all the things you were talking about, in human transaction, do you think there's been, there's going to be the same kind of increase? And if not, what's to prevent not becoming sort of uh, in an addictive, masturbating way to endorphins created by mind mirrors and other machines that would be so pleasurable? Would it take the place in any way of something more basic? And is that, is that human transaction static or can it grow at the same exponential pace as the other? And it will be Gurdjieff at various stages of evolution. That's the earliest stage of Gurdjieff. There's another one later on, which is Gurdjieff as a mammal. And that's a whole bunch of sheep busy munching away. And one sheep is standing up and saying, wait, wait, listen to me. We don't have to be just sheep. 
and uh, in the, as the as the uh, as the delay factor increases, the cortical delay, as Krzyzewski called it, as the cortical delay increases, you you're not uh, living in an Aristotelian either or stimulus response behaviorist net. You see a phalanx of possibilities, very much like the parallel universe theory in quantum mechanics, and you have more opportunity to choose which realities you want to go into and which you want to stay out of. And that's the whole purpose for work on consciousness. Uh, Maurice Nicole, who was a physician, a Jungian therapist, and a student of Gurdjieff, said the only uh, reason that consciousness research is so important is because we need to decrease the amount of violence in the world. Mm -hmm. And it will not decrease until people are more conscious of who they are, where they are, and what's going on around them. In the most positive view, then, we could take the machines to get to a better level of relating to everyone around and proceed beyond it, rather than use it to overstimulate like a drug or... Well, actually, um, there was research with rats where they kept pushing a button on a machine that stimulated the pleasure center. Um, but uh, the machines that I was talking about earlier, uh, the uh, neuropeptide machines, they they don't work that way. They have a very definitely limiting factor on them. There is, there hasn't appeared uh, anywhere any tendency of people to overuse the machines. You find out that after a few days, your consciousness is staying at uh, a certain level and you have no desire to go back to the machine. And uh, two weeks later or three weeks later, you suddenly decide, uh, gee, what's the matter with me? Oh yeah, I'm feeling kind of glum today. So you take another dose of the machine and you move your consciousness around. And, and if you have your brainwave done a couple of times a year, like I, I have been lucky enough to have lately, I keep running into researchers who are very eager to measure my brain. That's a wonderful thing. I keep getting cross-sections of my brain. And uh, I see how, how I'm learning to go into theta more and more quickly mm -hmm. and uh, how to go, how to move uh, from alpha down to delta fairly rapidly and move from the right hemisphere to the left and so on. And uh, it's obvious that uh, these machines will uh, lose their all interest from me in the next couple of years because uh, I'm learning the machines are teaching devices. And after you've learned the lesson, you give the machine away to a friend who could use it. And, uh, Pet scan your brain a few times. Uh, what? Pet scan your brain next. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yes. These uh, neuropeptide machines here, I'm hearing about. Um, are those accessible to like the regular Joe like me, or are they just yes. research? Yes. Uh, Omni magazine carries ads for them. Uh, so does Magical Blend. Uh, Reality Hackers has a lot of ads for them. Buy, buy, uh, go, go to a good large magazine store, buy Omni, Reality Hackers, and uh, Magical Blend. Uh, read the advertisements and decide for yourself which one you want to invest in. I do not recommend any particular machine because I don't want to lose my, I don't want to sound like a salesman for some machine company, so uh, I'm just talking about the general area. I have my own favorite, but I'm not going to tell anybody what it is. Besides, there are better ones coming along all the time. The thing I'm worried about is uh, uh, I ran across them before and some of them didn't measure brain waves at all, they just measured like perspiration or something like that. And I didn't know that there was an uh, inexpensive machine that could m measure your Theta waves say that you know that you could actually buy. 
There, but you're saying there are those out now. Uh, no, uh, machine to measure your brain waves is still rather expensive, uh, but uh, machines that will change your brain waves are getting cheaper and cheaper. There are machines that are run in the $200 to $400 range that uh, very definitely uh, move you from beta to alpha or down to theta or down to delta. And uh, I'll mention the names of some of the machines. There's the Pulse Star, the New Star, the Isis, the MC Squared, the Tranquilite, the uh, Endomax, the Neuropap, the Synchro Energizer, and uh, a few dozen others. And the advertisers all will tell you that their machine is the latest and the best. So you got to use your own uh, intelligence to pick out, uh, to find out more about the field. You can try reading Michael Hutchison's book, Mega Brain. That'll give you a lot of useful uh, information and leads. And you can try subscribing to my newsletter, Trajectories, in which I review these machines uh, fairly regularly. And you can talk, you can talk uh, to uh, other people who've investigated the field. Yes. Yeah, uh, I want to ask you about your play. Uh, were you the production that was done in Dublin? Were you pleased with it? And why hasn't been done? Hasn't it been done here? Uh, I was pleased with uh, the Dublin production. Uh, uh, the director of the Dublin production is trying to get a production on in New York right now. There's also a group in Portland, Maine, who are, uh, want to do it. And I'm, I'm very eager to see that production come off, even though Portland, Maine is not the center of the theatrical universe, <laughs> but it's where Reich actually stood trial. And I think it would be a wonderful thing to have the play about Reich done in the city where he stood trial and was condemned. And there's also uh, two groups in L.A. who are trying to get the money together to put it on. I don't know which one of them will get there first. So I'm expecting an American production in the, in the near future. Maybe more, probably more than one American production. Yes. In Ireland, did they do the play in Gaelic? <laughs> oh, well, I uh, always saw plays in Gaelic when I was in Ireland. Um, only five percent of the people in Ireland uh, speak Gaelic. But the theaters, they they all do it in Gaelic. No, most of the plays in Dublin are done in uh, Irish well, English. The only ones I saw were in Gaelic. Oh, well, yeah, there are, they are, there are theatrical groups who do plays in Gaelic, but most of the theaters in Ireland do plays in Irish English, which I happen to consider the most beautiful language ever invented in human history, vastly superior to English English, Australian English, and American English. Uh, Gaelic, they tell me, is a beautiful language, but I don't know, I don't know enough about it to pass judgment. Irish English, to me, is the most beautiful language ever created. And the greatest works of literature are all written in Irish English, John, uh, from Jonathan Swift to James Joyce to Flann O'Brien. That's another lecture. I, I have another lecture, uh, The Land Where Bulls Are Pregnant, where I explain all about Irish literature. But that's an entirely different lecture. And this has gone on pretty long tonight already. I think I will take uh, two more questions and then uh, take the rest of the evening off. OK. What is the place to start a riot about? Excuse me? The play To Start a Riot, what is that about? Oh, well, that was a play about uh, Ezra Pound, 
who made propaganda broadcasts over Rome Radio and was condemned for treason. And the play uh, is on a stage in which actors keep coming in talking about a riot that's going on outside the theater. This was, I wrote this in the 60s, where a bunch of peace demonstrators and, uh, were attacked by the police. And uh, then a race riot breaks out in a nearby neighborhood, and the, the race riot, the, poli the police riot, the peace riot, and all of this all gets tangled up with the pound play. That was called The Caged Panther, and several people were interested in a production, but a production never happened. And then I lost the script. I guess I got disgusted. Uh, maybe I'll rewrite it someday. I lost the script of the Rake play, too, and I rewrote that. Maybe I'll rewrite the Pound play someday. One more question. Uh, there you are. Um, do you feel that uh, uh, psychedelics have served their purpose as a catalyst in the, uh, the human species, or do you think that, that today there is still a purpose for these substances? Uh, culturally, they've served their purpose. Uh, culturally, they've done some good and some damage, and they send the signal around the world that human consciousness can be radically changed quickly. Uh, scientifically, they have not exhausted. Uh, they've, they, they were just barely tapping into it. I am not in favor of more widespread use of psychedelics. I am very much in favor of uh, re- uh, opening scientific investigation under controlled uh, conditions uh, with uh, skilled therapists uh, using Leary's general principles and Graf general principles about how to program a good trip. Um, I, I, think, I think that the, what was accomplished in the research of the 60s was so astounding in terms of the previous history of psychology that I think reopening that area to scientific research would be a tremendous benefit. Uh, but I am not, uh, I'm not particularly thrilled by the drug culture. I'm not particularly thrilled by all the bad uh, stuff that gets sold under the, under the wrong name and all the profits that are being made out of it and all that crap. Okay, that's it. Thank you all for your patience.